A university professor of English walked into his class one morning and told them that he had seen some of the most elegant lines of poetry in the English language. Walk with light. And he looked at the class and he said, isn't that a wonderful thing to say to somebody? And the class all agreed. And they asked who the poet was. And the professor said, well, it's probably anonymous poetry. It was on the sign at the corner of Ninth and Main. <laughs> as you will see, and as you have seen, if you're with us through the study of the Gospel of John, that light is a predominant theme throughout John's writing. And the book of, or his letter, first letter, is no exception. In John chapter 1, verse 9, John says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And we obviously know that he's referring to Christ, as he did when he used the word, word. The word is coming. The word was with God. The word was God. Word was from the beginning, etc. And the light and word are synonymous and John focuses on that through his book as well as into the first letter. Jesus affirmed that he was that word or that light in John chapter <coughs> excuse me. John chapter 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Now centuries earlier, the thought of light had also been very prominent. The psalmist said, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? <coughs> Isaiah chapter 9 says that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Thank you. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. And John continues the theme of light in his letter that he has written. And in this letter, he reminds them, the, the readers, that God is light. Some of the first verses we read contain, continue that thought. And in verse 5, it says, This is the message we heard from him and declare to you, God is light. Now he goes on and he talks about that light and he refers to the fact that there are three untruthful claims people make. There are consequences for those claims and then he corrects the claims with the truth. So let's begin looking first of all at some untruthful claims that people make. Claim number one is found in verse 8 or verse 6, rather. If we claim, and the word if there means when or in the event, in the likely event that this is taking place, if we claim to have fellowship with him, that is with God, who is the light, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. So the first claim, false claim, is that we have fellowship but their, their life did not exemplify that. They say they're close to God. 
They have fellowship, and the word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, which, which is, uh, connects us close association, mutual interests, sharing in something, having things in common, having a partnership. Those are all words that imply of koinonia or fellowship that we use. Fellowship with God suggests living a life of holiness. So when I claim that I have fellowship with God, by that statement, I am claiming that, that there's a connection there and that I am living according to him. But that was a false claim because it says that we have fellowship with him, that's what we claim, and yet we walk in darkness. And to walk in darkness means to walk in sin, to have a life of sin. So that's the first claim. Fellowship, but we really don't have that. A second claim, verse 8, says that we are without sin. Now that is an impressive claim, right? Anybody here ever claimed that? If you did, let me know. I want to know how you did it. But today, that idea is of sin is not a very popular idea. So it's easy to say, well, I don't have any sin because we don't want to define it. We don't want to deal with the truth of sin. But what is sin? Well, Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology writes that sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin includes not only individual acts, such as stealing or lying or committing murder, but also attitudes that are contrary to the attitudes God requires of us. This claim pretty much says, well, I'm perfect. I'm just right there with what God has in line for me and in, in, uh, what he has in store for me. The third claim that people make that is a false claim and it's found in verse 8, or verse 10, rather. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. So we've taken it one step further. Verse 8 says we have, we have no sin, but verse 10 says we have never sinned. We've, we have not sinned at all. Takes that to a total new, another level of sinlessness. It suggests that our spirits no longer struggle with sin. And because we've reached that, we, we, that level, we just can't even sin. It was just inconceivable that we would sin. Now, I think it takes a very arrogant person to declare that they have never sinned. However, years ago, John Wesley, a founder of the holiness movement, introduced into the Christian community the idea that sinless perfection can be achieved in this life through the second work of grace, that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Sinless perfection, however, excuses sins of ignorance. So if you have sins but you were ignorant of them, it doesn't count. Wouldn't that be nice? That'd be great. But that was what he taught. Many holiness types today have to maintain ignorance of their own sinfulness in order to maintain their testimony that they have achieved a state of sinless perfection. But that's what people were saying in the time that John was writing this letter. We have never sinned. So what are the consequences of these untruthful claims? Well, the first claim that we have fellowship with God and walk in the darkness 
says that we lie or we do not live out the truth. Now, throughout the letter, John has emphasized how the Christian belief and behavior are inseparable. Your walk, which is your conduct and your lifestyle, must match your talk. So what you say is what you need to live. Those making the claim of fellowship with God showed by their lifestyle that they were living in darkness. They were not living in the light. They were living in darkness. And darkness is considered that realm which is generally thought of as evil. It's not simply the physical darkness of night, but it is that a realm of, of evil, of wickedness, of demonic activity. I read about an interview that someone had done with Stephen King, a man who has written many a horror uh, novel and many movies have been made from his work. And he was asked about his daily writing routine. And he said he only wrote in the morning. And somebody asked him, well, do you ever write at night? His response was, are you kidding with the stuff that I write? <laughs> he, he understood what darkness meant. And even the physical darkness implied that which was evil or could be considered evil or wickedness. And so these claim makers are saying one thing but living another way. Isaiah had the warning for people like that. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That could have been read, written today, I think, in our world. People who call good evil and evil good. We don't have that clearly outlined at this point. We, we had those false claims because people lie, John says, they don't live the truth. They don't live out the truth. Now, the test for truth is not only the words we speak, but the actions that we carry out. The things that we do are part of that. It's a complete lifestyle. However, Jeremiah gives us an insight into the human nature. And he says in Jeremiah 5.31, he says... The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it. That is what happens in our world. We want to hear that which, which we think is good, and we love it. God says, what will you do in the end? What's going to happen? How's that working out for you? Would be that idea. It is interesting that John also uses truth along with light a lot. There's 16 times John uses the word truth or a form of the tr word truth in his letter, first letter, and nine times, six times with light. So God is light, but God is also truth. You remember John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. I am the truth, and God is also the truth. Now, the second claim is that the one that says we are without sin. What do we do? What's the consequence? We deceive ourselves. A person who claims to be without sin is self-deceived. No one else may think so, but they think so. So that's why someone said, well, their sin sticks out all over their experience. It's obvious when we talk to people about their sin, but they may be self-deceived. The word deceived is a Greek word, planao, 
and it means to lead astray or to wander. It is the word we use when we talk about our planets. The planets were initially thought to simply wander through the universe without any rhyme or reason. So they were called planao, to wander, to lead astray. And that's what these people are. They've been deceived, but they deceive themselves. Their own thinking has brought them to this point. Not only do they fail to do the truth, verse, which is what we read in verse 6, they don't live out the truth, but verse uh, 8 tells us that the truth isn't even in us if we make this claim. If the truth was in us, we would understand our situation and hopefully live it. But in this case, we don't even see it. Proverbs 30, verse 12 says, They are pure in their own eyes, but they are filthy and unwashed. But they think they're okay. Ever met people like that who think they're just fine? They don't need any change, but they live in sin. I am always amazed at how much time and effort people put into trying to prove how good and righteous they are. I remember years ago when we moved, just moved to Nebraska, and uh, a couple of men in our congregation were heading up north to uh, round up their cattle that they had put out there for the summer months in the pasture. They were going to bring them back closer to home uh, for the winter. And so they asked if I wanted to go along and be part of the roundup. And I, I said, well, I'll go along, but I'm really not into the riding the horse. Never been on the horse. I really don't want to spend three hours riding a horse somewhere and I that I don't know anything about. And so they said, okay, well, come on along. So there were four of us in the front of a pickup cab. And there were several large men in there. And it was a very uncomfortable ride for about three or four hours as we were squeezed into this cab. We got to our pasture, and the men got out, got on their horses and rounded up the cattle, brought them into the corral, and a cattle truck pulled up, and uh, the cattle were loaded onto the truck. And the men had an idea. Why doesn't Cal ride with a truck driver home? And it'll give him a chance to get to know the truck driver, which they all knew, who they all knew, and uh, we'll have more room in the cab. They never told him who I was. They just put me in the front of the cab. And so I got in the cab, and we started to drive. And we had an interesting conversation, although he was a rather foul-mouthed uh, truck driver and uh, didn't spare words and so on, for about a half hour, 40 minutes or so. And then he asked me what I did. <laughs> I thought he was going to put the truck in the ditch and swallow his cigarette at the same time. Uh, it was an interesting change in his demeanor. And he spent the rest of the trip trying to convince me how religious he was and how good he was and how often he went to church and, and all the stuff that you hear from someone like this. I just wanted to say, Ray, just cut it out. You're not impressing me. You're not impressing God. And every time I tried to turn the conversation <clears throat> to a personal relationship with Christ, he went back to, okay, and, and then he'd go on and all the things that he, could, he had done and could do and was doing that would definitely impress God, obviously. But over the years, he had so spent so much time deceiving himself that he didn't know the truth anymore. And that's what happens. That's the consequence of 
of thinking we're without sin, that we're okay, we're in pretty good shape. Our third uh, consequence uh, for the one that says we have not sinned is that we make God out to be a liar. Verse uh, 10, we make him out to be a liar. That is, that's a, an easy thing people do without really thinking and realizing it. I read an article this week about a project called the Bible Project. The Bible Project is all about exploring the entire biblical narrative, but breaking it up into, five, into short five-minute animated videos that help people understand the Bible. I watched some of them. They're, they're pretty interesting, very well done. I read about the uh, founder, the co-founder of the project, who used to be a professor at Western Seminary, an evangelical seminary. And in discussing the military campaigns um, against Canaan in the Old Testament, he states several times that God compromises. And I, I get to see a red flag when somebody says, well, God compromises. So then he explained what he meant. He said, when God sends Joshua or others to conquer pagan lands, he is making a compromise in doing this. He said, God is allowing himself to be depicted as a kind of God that he actually isn't by the Old Testament authors because of their limited horizon and point of view. That sounds to me like deception. When God is portraying himself as someone that he wants the people to believe, but that's not really who God is. We, I think we've made God out to be a liar when we do that. You see, that's what, what John says, don't do that. Don't make God out to be a liar. You see, God's word is very clear that we are all sinners. You read that again and again and again. We are all sinners. But people say, well, we're not sinners. We're, we're just adjusting things a little bit. If God, we were not sinners, would God have sent Jesus, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world, to die on the cross? That, that doesn't sound like a God that I want to know. But I believe God. And these people are saying, well, it's not really important. We haven't sinned. We make God out to be a liar. Why take it hard? Billy Sunday, some of you may know the name. I know none of you ever met him because he, he played professional baseball in the late 1800s, became a believer. In fact, he played for what was then the Chicago White Stockings. They are now the Chicago Cubs. And um, he, he was a good ball player, but God had got a hold of him, and he got it, went into ministry. He became one of the best-known American evangelists of the early 1900s. Billy Sunday said this, one reason sin flourishes is that we have treated it like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. I think that's pretty descriptive. We've treated sin as a cream puff. Really nice. and not, nothing, nothing dangerous about a cream puff. At least I don't think there is. Uh, unless you eat too many, I suppose. Um, but cream puff, we treat sin like a cream puff. We don't treat it seriously. We ought to treat it like a rattlesnake. <laughs> we stay away from rattlesnakes. And John says that we have made God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. In verse 8, he says the truth is not in us. Now he says the word is not in us. 
Now, whether John uh, had in mind the general reference to the scriptures or whether he was thinking back to his, his uh, gospel, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and goes on and obviously referring specifically to Jesus Christ. But maybe by now you know as you've read through John, John isn't always clear on which direction he wants to go, and he leaves it up to the reader. And very often they're both included in this. But he says the word, either Christ or the, word, the scripture, isn't in these people who make these claims. So now we've looked at the claims, and we've looked at the consequences. So now we want to turn that around, and we want to look at the changes that are needed to make these truthful, untruthful claims into truthful claims, because each one of them has, has an added, if we do this, we're on the right track. And the first claim is if we claim to have fellowship with him, walk in darkness, we lie, do not live out the truth. But, but, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I don't know if you've ever been down in a, in a cave on an exploration or on a, on a tour. Uh, it gets pretty interesting when you get down there. Beautiful, as long as the light is on. We were at the Mammoth Caves uh, National Park a number of years ago and took a tour of the, of the caves, and they took us down into, the, into this large cavern, right in, deep in the, under, in the earth. And the guide says, okay, I'm going to turn out the lights. And you've never seen darkness like that. You could, hold your, you could push your nose, your hand up against your nose, and you would not see your hand. I mean, it was black. And then before panic stuck, started, came in, the tour guide uh, turned on the lights, and you could hear a sigh of relief as people once again could see. But that's darkness. God, John says, if we walk in that, we lie, but we want to walk in the light. And when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And that's an interesting thought. I don't know if you've noticed that before, but it, it seems to me that John would have said, <clears throat> if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we would have fellowship with God. That's where the fellowship would be if we we're walking with him. But no, he says there's fellowship with one another. And what happens is that if we have fellowship with God, if our vertical is correct with God, then our horizontal will work out as well. If our vertical isn't right, it's really hard to get excited about being part of the church family or, or God's people because we don't want anything to do with them because they remind us maybe of, of our lack of walking with God and the fellowship that is there. So we, we need to make sure that our fellowship with God is correct and we can see that then in our congregation. And I love to walk around and to see the people visiting and talking and connecting with one another. I see a definite fellowship with one another in this room, in this congregation. And it's amazing where you find people that you can connect with. <clears throat> you can travel through, around the entire world, and everywhere you go, you can find people with whom you can have fellowship. Even though you don't know their language, even though you don't know the culture, but they are there. I have sat in a third floor room in, in Guangzhou, China, packed with Chinese believers. And every one of them knew 
that at any moment the communist guards could come up the stairway and arrest the pastor, which they had done many times before. I sat in an open-sided building in India, remembering the cobras I saw on the road as I was driving in. I've sat in a sanctuary, a state-of-the-art sanctuary, with every bell and whistle that technology can deliver. And in each one of those settings, I realize that most of those people have a relationship with God, a fellowship with Him, and we can have fellowship with one another, regardless of the location. Now, granted, there are people in all of those congregations, as there are here, that may not know Christ, that may not have that relationship with Him. And if you don't, today's a good day to do that, to get that connection. But we had that fellowship with God, and so we can have fellowship with one another. By the way, fellowship does not center on food. We may think it does, because I hear people say, well, after church, we're going to have time of fellowship. What they really mean is there's refreshments after church. That's a part of it. They ate a lot in the scriptures. You read through Acts, and the church met regularly for meals and times of, of eating together. But that's not fellowship. That's good, but it may add to it, aid the fellowship. But we have fellowship with one another because of our connection with God. Timothy Dwight, grandson of Jonathan Edwards and a former president of Yale University from 1795 to 1817, wrote these words. He said, I love thy kingdom, Lord, the place of thine abode, the church our blessed Redeemer saved with his own precious blood. I love thy church, O God, her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye and graven on thy hand. Oh, that a president of Yale today would write those words. But that's what, but he believed and he knew the church, loving the church, loving the people. You know, nobody can say, well, I love God, but I'm not so sure about God's people. We've got a problem if we don't love God's people because we're fellowship with God and fellowship with one other. There's no real fellowship with God which is not expressed in fellowship with others. And then John says that not only is there fellowship, but there's a purification of the blood by the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, and it purifies us from all sin. It's good for all sin, not just some, but all sin. Ask the thief on the cross whether it's good for his all sin. On his, at, his, at his time of death, he was forgiven because the blood of Jesus Christ covered his sins. What an incredible picture that is of that purification. And what I really love about the purification thing is that it's not just a removal of the sin. It's a forgiveness. It includes forgiveness. <clears throat> but you ever noticed how when you drop something on the carpet and you pick that up, there's still a mark on the carpet? You got to clean off that stain. Purification cleans the stain, and your carpet is perfectly clean. And God cleans us that way. He washes us white as snow. So God does it, and that is how we turn our, our claim from an untruthful claim to a truthful claim. We walk with the Lord and in fellowship with Him, and we will have fellowship with one another. The second claim 
the claiming to be without sin and deceiving ourselves, then the answer is, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. To confess means to agree with God about sin. It implies confession and that is, or repentance, and that is important. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is confession in an open way. This is not a blame session. When we come to God, we confess. We confess our sin. Not blaming others. Not reprimanding others. Not excusing ourselves. But confession is simply opening up our lives to God. And really, he already knows. You might as well be honest with him and confess because he knows. And why is that important? As Psalm 66, 18 says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, God, the Lord would not have listened. You see, it's important. This is not salvation. This is about our relationship with God, our fellowship with him. It's broken when we sin. And the iniquity separates us from God. And we need to confess. And that is important to receive the forgiveness. And when we do, John says he's faithful and just to forgive. Faithful and just. Doesn't scold us. God never gets impatient with us. I'm sure nobody here ever gets impatient with anybody else, right? No parents ever gets impatient with their child. God does not get impatient with us. He hears us, he loves us, and he wants to, to work with us. Abe Lincoln on uh, March of 1863 said, It is the duty of nations as well of, as of man to confess their sin and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. John says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he just might just might forgive us our sins. Some people read it that way and they're hesitant because they're not sure he will. John says, no, he will. He will. God will forgive our sins. And it's forgiving and cleansing. Dr. Carl Menninger, psychiatrist and founder of the Menninger Clinic, said the number one reason most people end up in a psychiatric hospital is guilt. If they could just confess their guilt and know they were forgiven, 75% could leave the hospital that day. Now, that may be a little high for in, in, in today, but, but what it means is that if we can give or get forgiveness of our sins and our guilt, we, are fee we feel free. We are free then to move on in life. God forgives. How can he forgive sin? Because God hates sin. He can do it because Jesus died on the cross for our sin. So it's taken care of, and we'll see that in just a moment. The world tells us, you made your bed, you sleep in it. You, you messed up, guess what? You suffer. You're, you have to pay all the consequences because you really messed up. Christ said, take up your bed and walk. Your sins are forgiven. That's the difference. And Christ says, I will forgive. Our third, our third claim then is that if we sin... And we've said we, we have not sinned, but John says, if we sin, here's, here's the answer. Now, it is appropriate at this point to, to point out the fact that in the scriptures, when they were written, there were no chapter breaks. There were no verse breaks. Those were, the, the chapters came in the 1200s, 
and three years later, the verses were, made, were, were put in place. And they were not put, on, uh, put in because we have the ESV or the King James or the new, not even the King James was available at that time or the NIV. And so our translations don't match up necessarily with what the original uh, verse breaks were. So those are not inspired. One of the most interesting assignments I had in seminary was to read the book of Mark with no chapters and no verse breaks. Just read the, from beginning to end as you would a, pick up a book and read the book without the chapters and just read it. What a fascinating study that is. I'd, I encourage you to try it sometime. Find a copy of, of Scripture. If you need to cut and paste on a computer, you cut and paste, remove the verses and the chapters, and just read it as the, as the original readers would have had it. And so it's okay to ignore chapter breaks, and we're going to do that because we're moving from chapter 1 into chapter 2 without breaking. John says, My dear children, I write to you that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, and I say, Thank you, John. Thank you. Because I need to hear that. If I sin, I do. <laughs> Probably when I sin. You have an advocate in verse 2. Or verse 1. We have an advocate with the Father. An advocate is an attorney, a com comforter. It's used in, in the Gospel of John when Jesus says, I will send you another comforter or a counselor or, or somebody to come alongside of you. It's the same word. It's someone who comes to your help and your aid. And Jesus comes alongside of us. And what John is telling us is that when we sin, God, heaven gets busy to defend us. And when he says the, our advocate, Jesus Christ, stands before the Father. Now picture that, that court scene. Instead of having a judge in a robe and looking stern and, and, and so on, we have the Father, God's, God the Heavenly Father, standing there or sitting on his, on his throne, however we picture that. And in front of him stands our lawyer, and we are standing beside him. And we have the charges read for us. And our attorney, our, our advocate says, Your Honor, our Father, these people are guilty. Definitely. Everything on that charge is true. That's not really the defense lawyer I want. But that's what we have. We have a defense lawyer who says, Father, they are guilty of everything you are charging them with. But remember, remember the cross. And that's where I took care of their sin. And because I paid for their sin on the cross, we acquit them. We set them free. We declare them righteous because of my righteousness. And I'm thinking, wow, that's what Christ did for me. So when I sin, Christ stands before the Father, and we're, we're assuming some things because we don't have the details of how all this works out. But, but just picturing something like that, where, the, where Christ stands before his Father and says, Father, these people are guilty. They have no way of taking care of their sin, but I took care of that. I paid their sin, and I died for them and for the whole world, he says. Now, we recognize that this does not mean that the whole world is automatically saved because Jesus died for them. That's not the case. What is the case is that 
When Christ died, he died for the sins of the whole world. It says, though he put a deposit into a bank account, and he has an account, as it were, and forgive me for my humble illustration, but this is how I picture it. He put that into an account. Every person in the world has an account. How do you get your money out of an account? You have to make a personal withdrawal. It doesn't come automatically to you. And so you go to the bank, as it were, and you withdraw your money, and now you have taken the money out of the account. Salvation is the same. The account is there. It's there for you. What do you need to do? Confess. Confess your sins. And the account is opened up. And all that is in that account, the the forgiveness, the purification, the sanctification is all yours now because you have opened that account. So how do we apply this passage? First of all, I want to say that we need to make sure we're walking in the light. And if you've been in this congregation for a while, you will probably hear this pretty much every Sunday. That if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, now is the day to do that. And that is walking in the light. The light comes our way. We can have a chance, we have a chance to be, have a personal relationship with the God of the Creator and His Son. And we can walk in the light. We don't have to walk in the darkness. There's an option or there's an alternative to that walking in the light or in the darkness. But only Christ will give you the ability to walk away from the darkness and into the light. John 8, 12 says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or like 1 Peter 2, 9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your, his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you can have a chance to walk in the light. And there will be prayer partners up here this morning after the service that you can talk to who will, will, work, will, uh, will pray with you and give you information and help you with this. I can be, I'll be around the sanctuary as well. So, and, and there may be others that you know that, that can help you. And how do you find the light of the world and how does that light become yours? A second point would be to keep current with your confession of sin. Augustine said that we all have a lot of light sins. But he said the problem with light sins is that many light sins become a heavy sin. The challenge from Scripture is to confess our sin when it happens. Confess those light sins because sin is sin. And so we need to confess those and stay current with our sins. Confessing. Again, not for salvation, but for our relationship with God, our fellowship that is broken if we, when we sin. Came across a quote uh, that I thought was good. Jesus, sin is the best news there is because with sin, there is a way out. You can't repent of, of confusion or psychological flaws inflected by your parents. You're stuck with those. But you can repent of sin. 
Sin and repentance are the only grounds for hope and joy and the grounds for reconciled and joyful relationships. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing light into this world. It's a world of darkness. And Father, even now around us, there is much darkness. But I thank you that we can walk in the light as you are in the light. We can have fellowship with you. We can have fellowship with one another. And Father, when we sin, which we do, we have an advocate, someone who stands before us or with us before the Father. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we are clothed in his righteousness. Father, encourage us this week. Help us to understand the importance of regular confession and to walk with you in the light. I pray this in Jesus' name.